Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Now, I mentioned earlier about, I know uh, people are having, having fun, you know, with the football this time of year. It's not going to change your life or my life, but it's fun, you know, and we enjoy it. And um, uh, so next Sunday, I do, I do realize that the Seahawks play at 12 o'clock next Sunday, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so I'll make a promise to you, if you come next week, we will dismiss right at 12 o'clock. And by the time they flip the coin and go through all the pregame stuff and so on, I'll bet you could get home in time to watch it. If not, we can all go over to Gary's house right next door and uh, put a big screen up outside in his parking lot and sit out there. And uh, so, you know, we're not going to... So please, we'll come next week and I guarantee you, I guarantee you we'll get done at 12 o'clock. I promise you. Do you believe me? Trainer, what are you shaking your head for? My (laughs) nephew, an elder in the church, a nephew of mine, Gary, do you believe me? Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Mark chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to focus on one aspect from Mark chapter 2 today. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. And I'm going to get my notes out. I have a couple sets of notes today. One that I forgot to format right. There we go. And uh, we're going to have a word of prayer and begin. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word And again, we thank you for the privilege that we have to just come in freedom and uh, open your word. Uh, We are reminded each week, Lord, of uh, throughout the week of the news, and we know how uh, for many of our brothers and sisters, it's a very dangerous thing to gather and open your word today. We pray for them, and uh, we lift them up to you. And uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, we would never take this lightly, and we would take it seriously and accept the freedom and the responsibility to read your word and to live by what we read in your word. So we invite your presence with us now in a wonderful and a special way in Christ's name. Amen. It also reminds me that uh, Thursday is our WMF, Women's Missionary Fellowship, luncheon. And I believe Kamesh, if not mistaken, is going to be with us this week. And uh, she has been involved in work in Turkmenistan and works with people who are working in a very uh, difficult situations, and she'll be our guest speaker this week. So uh, everybody is welcome, even if you don't come for the work time. Uh, men, you're welcome to come at 12 o'clock and join us for lunch, a great lunch. It'll be a great presentation, and I invite you to come and support this ministry and be with us. Last week, we uh, began in our study that we're doing church-wide, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and uh, we talked here particularly about uh, the man with leprosy that was healed and this took place, uh, and this also was part of your Sunday school lesson as well today. But this uh, took place um, as we look in chapter 1 of, John, of Mark. And we look at chapter 1 of verse 21. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And we mentioned last week that Capernaum is the place that was Jesus' home base ministry for his work in Galilee, which pretty much comprises the bulk of the Gospels until he begins to go down to uh, Jerusalem for the Passion Week. We're going to conclude this study in Mark uh, at Easter. So we're going to study his life from start to finish from Mark and conclude, of course, with the resurrection in Easter. I mentioned Capernaum last week and a couple of places. This, I just want to get you just a little bit of a, an idea of sort of the landscape. This, this is Capernaum 
And this is looking out over the Sea of Galilee. This is at the northwest corner. And the building that you see without the roof there, that's, that's the synagogue today that you could go visit when you go to Capernaum. And you can see it there. Um, and the, I mentioned last week, the, the, the fun thing about going there is that this, this was built on the exact same floor plan, the one below it that was destroyed. And of course, it was covered and rebuilt. It's the exact same floor plan of the synagogue that Jesus went into at Capernaum. So it's just really fun to go there, to sit on the benches. I remember I had time just to sit there quietly for a little bit on one of the benches on the side. And, and this, this is where Jesus was. Uh, in, this, in this location, and this is Capernaum. This is where so much of this took place. And with today's lesson, I want to look particularly at chapter 2 of the calling of Levi. And you notice in the bulletin that I, I have a different title than that. It has to do with a, a uh, kingdom feast. And I'm going to explain that to you. You might think that's kind of odd, that this has nothing to do with the feast of the kingdom. But I want to talk about that and uh, connect that with our lesson this morning as we look at this. But as Jesus is ministering, and we've watched and you've learned, studied in Sunday school class, and we're going to look next week actually at the healing of the paralytic previous to this. But if you look at the calling of Levi, once again, verse 13, well, just look at the end of verse 12. The people say, we have never heard anything like this. These people are amazed. They're praising God. They're listening to Jesus. We talked in Sunday school this morning. They certainly don't realize he necessarily is God. They don't realize maybe he's the son of God, but at this point in the story, they are beginning to realize he is a special man. He is a prophet. He is a rabbi teacher. He's, man, he's a man who has been endowed with God with, with wonderful gifts. He's healing people. They've never seen anything like this. Uh, radical uh, things are happening. Lepers are clean. Uh, demons are cast out. We'll see blind seeing and the deaf hearing. People with all sorts of you know, withered uh, hands and legs and feet being healed. I mean, it's just it's amazing. And the word is spreading around. And it's not, again, this is not a sideshow in Israel. This is huge. And we saw earlier that all of Judea was going out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. This is, this is a big deal. And it's spreading fast in this area of Galilee. And it says here, then, verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. I showed you a picture of this, the Sea of Galilee. It's a lake, but it's called the, the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, uh, the Jordan River runs from the south down to the, to the Dead Sea. And he comes to the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd came to him. And he began to teach them. And he's, and he's teaching publicly, and people are coming and listening to him teach. And he's teaching, and I, I assume given what he teaches after the resurrection and also what the apostles teach in early Acts, that we, I think we can assume he's going to the Old Testament. Remember the Jewish context of this, of this gospel. That's very important to remember. And he goes to the Old Testament and he's probably teaching them regarding the prophecies of the coming Messiah. He's teaching them about God. He's teaching them where some of the things they're hearing are not correct about God. And he's explaining, and I think he's probably talking about the coming kingdom. You have to remember that for the Jews in this first century, there was this huge anticipation that God was going to send the Messiah. And he was going to establish a literal kingdom on earth. And, and, and Israel is going to be the center of this kingdom. And it's for the whole world. It's not just an Israel thing. It's not just for the Jews. The Old Testament makes it clear. It's for the entire world, Jew and Gentile. 
but it's going to be set up and administered when the Israel's Messiah, the son of David, as we've celebrated at Christmas, is going to come and he is going to overthrow the oppressors, and in this case would be the Romans, and set up this, this kingdom. And these people are, in, and the Jews have been anticipating this, of course, ever since then. You all probably seen the, the play or the movie Fiddler on the Roof. And at the end of that, when they have to leave on a Tevka and, and someone goes to the rabbi and says, wouldn't this be a good time for the Messiah to come? And what does he say? We'll have to what? You guys need to get out a little bit. Have you seen this play, a movie? <laughs> it's okay. We'll have to wait somewhere else. In the meantime, let's start packing. And he packs up the Torah scrolls and from the synagogue, and they have to go wait. And this has been the story. This is the hope still for Israel, for Jews, for observant Jews today. This is still a hope that the Messiah will come. This is in the background. And, and Jesus comes, and he's teaching, and I'm sure this is part of his teaching. In verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, we want to stop here for a minute, and I, I know that maybe you, you studied this in Sunday school a little bit in some of your classes. I want to talk about a little bit about this, because, because we see this in the Gospels, of course, rather prominently, that tax collectors are listed among those sinners who Jesus invites. And this Levi, and of course, the name Levi comes from the, the tribe of Levi, and as is common in the Bible, we'll see that they have surnames, they have often two names, um, just like I have two names, James, Evan, Shamaria. Um, and uh, so there's some of you that go by your middle name, you know. Uh, every so often, I, I remember going not too long ago up to see um, Jane Crawford, and I couldn't find her in the hospital. I didn't know her name was Francis. <laughs> you know, I only know her name is Jane. And uh, so we, we have this too. And, and, and so this is Matthew, Matthew Levi. And there's no reason to, to doubt that, as we'll see from Matthew. When Matthew gives this story, Matthew says, it's Matthew. It's the exact same story. So it's Matthew, Levi. And so Levi, the son of Alphaeus, is a tax collector. Now, what does this mean? The term that's used in the first century, you'll see this in Greek and Roman literature, is that they were called tax farmers. Tax farmers. Now, you, wouldn't, you don't think of a tax collector or a tax, someone who works for the IRS or the state of Washington or the city in tax collection as a farmer. You might, we might think of it better as a franchise. You know what a franchise is, of course. You know, you have, a, you have a name of a corporation and you have the right to use that name and to run a business, but you run the business. If I opened up a fast food franchise from one of the big corporations, um, I use their name, I use their products, we sign an agreement, but how much money my franchise makes is going to be dependent on how I run it, how it works, how much sales we do. It's a franchise. And so these tax farmers, these men like Levi, who, who, who ran this business, this is basically what it was. It was a franchise. And he was responsible to, as far as we know, now there are different opinions because, you know, this is 2,000 plus years ago, but as far as you know, the, the situation seems to be he was responsible to provide a certain amount of money to the Roman government. In this particular case, probably to the local tetrarch, not so much the emperor of Rome, but the local Roman governor. He was, he, he, at the end of the month, he had to provide X amount. Anything over that X amount was his profit. Anything under that X amount was his loss. 
And so tax collectors were known and got the reputation of being dishonest and being disreputable because they were known and the person could do this. And I want to make sure we understand this, that sometimes guilt by association, every, every trade, every job, every occupation, profession has this. I mean, there are people, if I go somewhere and introduce myself as a pastor, and there are people that come from certain contexts that right away is, may assume the worst because of things they know about pastors or about charlatans and so forth, okay? And so you get a, you, get a, you know, there are names connected with some of your professions that, that you know, you do and someone that will hold, they say, oh, everybody's like that. They weren't all like that. But there were those who took advantage of it and they cheated people. And people knew that. But you had no choice. If the tax man said, you owe this amount, you paid it because they had the Roman government behind them. And if everybody knew they were charging more than they should have, uh, that was too bad. They didn't all do that. But they got this reputation that this is how they made their money, and it became a dirty job for a Jew to be a tax collector. There were two kinds. There was an income poll tax, basically a tax on your income or on your business or your product you brought through, or there was the tax like 520 Bridge, it was a toll, and you paid a tax or a toll on certain highways and bridges in Judea. Those were the two branches. Levi, sitting at a tax booth in Capernaum, most likely is the poll tax. And this means that people who brought their commerce through, the farmers, the tradesmen, the caravans, the fishermen that brought their products through, a duty tax, if you will, was imposed, and it was his job to collect that money and turn it over to the Roman government, and he made his living off of that. The Jews' attitude toward the tax collectors was very, very negative. The average Jew, the average person, resented them for their work, number one, because they worked for the foreign power, they worked for the oppressors, they worked for the Romans. And the Romans were everywhere. And, and, and everybody knew who was in charge. Secondly, because of the dishonesty associated with many of them, they were greatly rejected. However, for the rabbis and religious leaders, it was, even, it was even more so. When he entered the service as a tax collector, he was an outcast. A Jew who, who went to work for the Romans as a tax collector was banned from service in a Jewish court. He was, his witness was no good. If he witnessed a crime, he could not be called to testify because his witness was no good. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. He did not come to synagogue service and attend synagogue. And he was a disgrace to his family. Now, this is something. I looked this up in the Mishnah, which is the, is, is the collection of Jewish teachings from the first century. Okay? I have a copy in my office. It was collected. It was, it was edit, ended about 200 AD. It was a collection of the teaching of the rabbis, and it became the, the codified law that later gave rise to the Talmud. And here's what it says. I, this is a direct quote from the Mishnah on my shelf. Uh, if you want to look it up, it's under Vows, section 3.4. The religious leaders said this. Men, now listen to this. Men may vow, make a promise, to murderers, robbers, or tax gatherers, that what they have is a heave offering, even though it is not. Or they may say that they belong to the king's household, even if they don't. In other words, you are given permission to lie to a robber, a murderer, or a tax collector. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That's in there. That's in there. Look it up. Vows 
Nedrum section 3.4. That's how low these people were in the, in the social ladder and how they were looked upon. I want to suggest to you too, there's a good chance that Peter and John and Simon, or that Andrew, that the brothers, the groups we've seen so far who were fishermen, they probably knew him because they had to pay their tax when they brought their fish in. And they probably knew Levi quite well and probably didn't care for him a whole lot because they knew what was going on, at least they thought they knew what was going on. And so we stopped, of course, at the critical point. In, back in verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth, and Jesus simply says to him, as he did to the fishermen, follow me. That's it. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. You know, um, sometimes we might think, well, this situation where he's just sitting there and all of a sudden this person walks by and says, follow me, and he gets up and follows him. But we've got to remember, Jesus has been teaching in Capernaum. He's been in the synagogue. He's been on the shores. He's had crowds gathered. And just like Zacchaeus, who was not welcome, who climbed the tree to listen to him, this was a big deal. This was a big thing. And there's a, I, I'm, I'm just assuming that, that Matthew Levi had heard Jesus talk. I mean, everybody's listening. And, and everybody's talking about it. And people are coming and going. And, and he's got friends and he's got people. And they're talking about what's going on. And he has heard, I'm sure, about Jesus. And they probably have heard the news that Jesus just walked up to the fishermen and, and of all the people and said, follow me. And they left their nets and followed him. I mean, it's just like almost bizarre kind of, you know, just get up and leave your business and come and follow me. Don't think about it. Don't, you know, just come. And they did. And I wonder if he sat there and, and thought about that. What, you know, I don't know about you. Maybe you've been in a situation where people assume the worst about you because of association. Maybe your trade, maybe your family, maybe something in the past. And people just assume the worst about you and, and, and how that hurts. You know, maybe Matthew Levi was not a cheat or a crook. Maybe he was doing his best he can to, to serve and, and to do what was right. Uh, we don't know. But I wonder what went through his head as maybe he heard the stories and heard the teaching of this, of this wonderful rabbi, this prophet, who was healing people and calling people and casting out demons and, and, and loving people. I wonder if the thought crossed his mind. Um, you know, would he dare ever talk to him? Would he dare ever approach him? Would he, would he, what are the chances of him coming and talking to me? After all, he is a religious man. He is a, a teacher, a rabbi. He may be a prophet. And he comes by his toll booth. And he says, and he stops. And can, you, can you imagine the, maybe the hush that comes over the crowd and the shock when he says, follow me, follow me. I wonder if Peter and, and Andrew and John um, maybe nudged Jesus and said, hey, hey, Jesus, you, you know who this is, right? The shock that he would call Levi to be one of his followers and to join these others and to become part of his disciple group, his call. And you know, the, the really even amazing thing is, is, is you read it from Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us this story. This is Matthew. What I have up there is Matthew. So this is Matthew telling the story himself when he writes his gospel. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth 
follow me, he told him. And then Luke's telling of it. Maybe the next slide. This is interesting. Luke's the only one tells this. Luke says, when Jesus said, follow me, Jesus said to him, follow me. And Levi got up and Luke inserts, he left everything and followed him. He left everything. And you know, of all the disciples, and I was thinking about this, and some of the commentaries I was reading, and, and they noted this, and I got to thinking about this. I'd never really thought about this before. Of all the disciples, this man, Levi, may have given up the most. It may have, been, it may have cost him the most of all the disciples to get up and say goodbye to everything and follow Jesus. You see, the fishermen could always go back to fishing. And in fact, in the Gospel of, I think it's the Gospel of John at the end, what happens? When Jesus is gone and, and they're discouraged, and what does Peter say? I'm what? I'm going fishing. And they go fishing. And Jesus comes along the shore of Galilee and, and calls them back. But these men could go back fishing. If there was going to be an interval between Jesus returning, they could go back to fishing. The others could go back to their professions. Listen, when you get up and leave a tax collector's booth, the Roman government is not very forgiving. You are finished. Don't you dare ever apply for a job with the Roman government again because you will not be accepted. You will not even get an audience. Don't try it. And you are not accepted. Your Jewish community is not very forgiving either. You, your family has cut you off. You, you have nothing. All you had was your job and your fellow tax collectors, and now that is gone. Your job is gone. He has nothing to go back to. If this whole thing doesn't pan out, if it turns out that Jesus is not who he says he is, and things go bad, the rest of them can go back to their occupations. He has nothing. He gets up, and he leaves everything to follow Jesus. I want to suggest to you, this outcast exhibits a tremendous act of faith. And that's what the life of the Lord is about in this early stages, is decisions. What do you think? What are you going to do? I've asked you, how are you going to respond? And he got up, and he left everything. But he has a new family. He is now part of the family of the Lord. And as Jesus does this, of course, you go on and read the story. Verse 15, not only did he become a follower of Jesus, and he was a man of some means. These men, it was a good business. They, tax farming was good. They made good money. And while Jesus was having, verse 15, dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners. You notice in my translation, sinners is in quotes, and it might be in your translation as well. Because, see, the idea is that, that these people who are sinners, it's not so much, these are not necessarily robbers and thieves and people who have literally broken the law. It's just assumed that you're a sinner if you're part of the tax collector's crowd. And this is what we see in the Gospels, that they're called sinners. In fact, the rabbis, the, the Pharisees, called the average people like you and me, am ha'aretz, people of the land, people who were not um, who were not particularly particular about keeping the Mosaic law and its fine points. And they looked down upon the fishermen and the others as well. But this is the next group. These are people who, are, who, who have a bad reputation by 
guilt by association or by their trades. And it says that he was eating. He was dared to sit down and eat with these sinners and tax collectors. They were eating with him, and his disciples were too. For there were many who followed him. We aren't given the details how this banquet, you know, banquets just don't happen. Somebody prepared this food, somebody invited. Levi, he only has a certain group of friends. They're tax collectors. That's all he has for friends. And so he invites them and says, we're going to come and dine with Jesus. And these people who were the last ones who ever expected to ever have any relationship with a rabbi, they were invited to Levi's house and they sat down and they, and they were eating dinner. They were having a feast. And I want to suggest to you that the language almost suggests that Jesus is kind of hosting this feast. Even though it's not his house and Levi's paying for it, Jesus is the center of attention. They are gathered around Jesus. So he becomes, in a sense, the, the host of this feast, even though it's at Levi's house. And when the teachers of the law who were with the Pharisees, it's interesting, the literal, the literal translation in Greek is it says the scribes of the Pharisees. And that's literally what it says. So there's this kind of particular group among the Pharisees. It's the scribes, the, the, really, the, the really religious leaders, the lawyers in the sense of religious law, the scribes of the Pharisees. They are the ones, and you notice who they go to, they saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. And you notice they go to his disciples and not him. Have you noticed that? They go to the disciples, not Jesus. And they say to his disciples, who also were sitting there eating, and they said to him, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now you notice the disciples don't say anything. You know, these, these, are, these are people who wouldn't normally sit down for dinner with the tax collector. <laughs> Probably the last person Peter and John and Andrew wanted to eat with were the tax collectors. But they're there. And they're asked this question by the, the scribes of the Pharisees, the top Jewish lawyers, lawyers in the sense of the legal aspects of the Jewish law. And I wonder if their mouths just kind of fell open. Like, <laughs> what do you say? Yeah, why are we doing this, by the way? <laughs> why are we eating with these tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus hears this. They didn't ask Jesus, but he heard this. And he says to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the story ends in Mark. Now, we sang a song this morning that had uh, part of the, the, the Luke and the Matthew passage where it, where it refers to the fact that Jesus says to them, go, go and learn what this means. This passage from Hosea. Go back, scribes of the Pharisees. You know the Old Testament law. Go back to Hosea the prophet, where he says, I, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. What do, you, what do you do with that? How do you interpret that? What does that mean? Does, doesn't it mean that, that the first priority that God desired of his people was compassion and mercy and love, and that any sacrifice brought would be a result of that, an evidence of a true heart that was, that was tuned in with God. He says to the Pharisees and the scribes of the Pharisees, the experts in the legal law of the Jewish religion, go back and read Hosea and, and, and come back and tell me what that says. And he quotes what appears to be, it appears to be sort of a well-known proverb. We see this in other, other literature from the time. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, now, I know we go for checkups. 
I know I should go for a checkup. <laughs> and, uh, you know, routine checkups. But, but when you're sick, you call the doctor, right? Because you, there's something that needs attention. And as it's a proverbial saying. But what is he saying? You know, who did, who did Jesus come to call? Who did he come to call? And, I, and let me ask you this question. Who, who are the righteous? Are there any righteous? What does is, what is Paul tell us? Paul tells us in the book of Romans, there are none that are what? Close from the Old Testament. The Old Testament says there are none that are righteous. There are none that seek after God. Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinners. But the Bible tells us in God's eyes, there are no righteous in terms of perfection for salvation. So certainly this is sort of a tongue-in-cheek um, uh, thought for, the, for the, the scribes of the Pharisees. As he tells them later, you know, you say you're not, you're not sick, so you don't need me. And it's, and it's, and it's, an, and it's an explanation of them. Are, are you really righteous? You don't understand that the Bible says, I desire mercy first and then sacrifice, but you're righteous. And of course, the implication is, no, you are not righteous. You are just as much a sinner as the rest of these people. The only difference is what? Huh? What's the difference between the rabbis, the Pharisees, and these other people, like the tax collectors? They know they're sinners. They know they're sinners. But you don't know it. And of course, that is the dividing line always for the message of the gospel. You have to come to a point where you recognize. You know, in our own humanity, we think we're righteous. We think, we're, we hope we're going to be good enough. You ask anybody in the street, are you going to go to heaven? I hope so. I hope so. I hope when I get there, what I did was better than what I didn't do. And uh, I hope so. We are not righteous in God's eyes. There is none that is righteous. That's a, that's a tough biblical principle for people to buy from the Christian faith. But it's true because God is perfect, holy, and just. And just like if I had a clear glass of perfectly pure water and dropped a little pollution in it, the whole glass is affected. It doesn't matter if I drop, a, 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 if I put a, a spoonful or eight ounces full. It doesn't matter. It's polluted and you won't drink it if it's poison. They knew they were sinners. Now, this, I want to just point out something to you before we close this morning. That I want you to notice this takes place at a feast. And in the background of the Gospels, and especially, well, in, in Mark as we study it, in the background is the fact that Jesus is preparing them to understand he is the Messiah. They don't understand that yet. Later on they say, could, could this be, could it be the Messiah? He is the Messiah who is coming to offer the Messianic kingdom. It can't be offered till after he dies. He has to die first. He has to pay for sins. And the kingdom will be offered. But I want you to notice that these people, these tax collectors and sinners, they are dining with Jesus. They are eating with Jesus. And this becomes a big theme throughout the Gospels, people eating with Jesus. He feeds the 5,000. He has the Last Supper. He goes to Mary and Martha's house. He dines. He eats. He breaks bread. He did his last thing, he eats with the disciples at the shore of Galilee. He eats with them. This is significant. This is significant. We had a wonderful dinner out the other night with some friends from, friends from church. A wonderful evening. Long evening and a long, enjoyable dinner. It's significant. It's not, not just a social event. It's a relationship. And, and this is important. And I want you to notice, especially in, in light of this, now, I said I'd let you out next week at 12 o'clock. I need a couple more minutes today, okay? That wasn't this week. Give me just a couple minutes here. Real quickly, go to, go to the book of Revelation. 
Go to the book of Revelation, and you go to the very end of the book of Revelation, and Revelation 3.20. It's not Revelations, by the way, it's Revelation. And you'll notice this very well-known passage that you probably have heard, Revelation chapter 3. And in the, in, some of you have been in Debbie Amel's class on the churches of, of uh, Revelation. This is the last one, Church of Laodicea, and the angel of the Lord in verse 14 is there, and he writes to them, these are the words of the faithful in verse 14, uh, of the amen, the faithful true witness. Okay, now you go to the end here, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, I will come in. How many of you have seen that old, the, the, the famous painting of Jesus knocking at the door? You've seen that, haven't you? We've heard this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody opens, I will come in. But notice what he does when he comes in. I will come in and eat with him. And he with me. I will come in and we will dine together. Now, this, this principle is certainly true for, for all time that, that Jesus is coming, that, that Jesus offers to anybody, that even today, if Jesus, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's knocking at the door. And you're opening the door is simply a matter of faith of saying, yes, I, I, I accept this, that I'm a sinner, that Christ died on the cross and paid for my sins. He rose from the dead. I receive that, that he is knocking. Yes, that's true. But it also has a wonderful context for Israel. The book of Revelation, and we've been talking in Revelation about the 144,000, the remnant of Israel, the 12,000 from every tribe who become the nucleus of the remnant who survived the horrible tribulation and who are the nucleus of the ones that God brings in to the Messianic kingdom, which will be for the whole world. We happen to believe at our church that this is literally still going to happen. That's one of our views from our understanding of the Bible, that when this age of the body of Christ is over, that the, that the Messianic kingdom is still going to come. And, you, and part of that is this great feast that God is going to prepare for, his, for, his, for the marriage feast of the Lamb and, and the nation of Israel, the, the remnant as they come in, and this feast begins, and it's part of the Old Testament, it's part of Old Testament theology, it's part of their story. And in fact, and in fact the, rabbis, the rabbis talked about this. The rabbis talked about that, that, that this, this era today is like a vestibule. A vestibule is like we call it the narthex. And the rabbis are quoted as saying, this age today is like the vestibule where we are being prepared to come in to the feast. The Jews believe that. And so this is significant that Jesus says, I, I stand at the door and knock. Listen, listen, open the door. I am coming, and when I come, I'm going to dine with you. And then I want you to notice, closing, Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, as we come to the end of the book of Revelation, sometimes we shy away from reading Revelation. Those of you in Bible study fellowship, next year they're going to study Revelation. And uh, they're gearing up for a little bit larger turnout. And you can do that if you want. If you'd like more information about Bible Study Fellowship, talk to us. There's a group that meets here every Tuesday night. Some of we others are involved in different churches. They're going to study Revelation next year. And they're, and they're gearing up for that. It's going to be a great, great study. In Revelation chapter 19, and in verse 6, the, the, my Bible, this, this chapter is titled, Hallelujah, Praise the Lord. And I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing water, like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Come on, hallelujah. hallelujah! Yeah, good. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. The fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. 
And the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell down to worship. And the Lamb angel said, Don't worship me, worship God. They were invited to this feast, which is the inauguration, which is part of this messianic festival to introduce and as part of the kingdom that is going to be for the whole world. And friends, it's going to be a wonderful day when, when there's finally going to be righteousness and justice on earth when the king is here. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open the door. I will come in. And I will dine with you. And I'm, what I'm saying all this is to suggest this. In Mark chapter 2, that Jesus is giving a taste of what is to come. It's a foreshadow of what is to come. And isn't it wonderful that this foreshadow of what's to come, he feasts, he dines, and who does he invite well, the, the, the scribes of the Pharisees are there as well. They probably could have come if they were willing to. But they're not friends of Levi. <laughs> but he invites the sinners, the tax collectors. Later, grouped together are the prostitutes. The prostitutes and the sinners and the tax collectors. They are invited to dine and eat with the Messiah. The first feast for the Messiah. And it's a foreshadow that on that wonderful day, God is going to invite the sinners. And they're going to come. And all who repent and accept and receive him as Messiah will dine at that great feast at the Messianic kingdom. And the principle from this is applicable to all ages, all dispensations, all eras, that the door is shut because of sin, and he knocks. He knocked, and Levi, the most unlikely of all the disciples, opened the door, and he got to dine with Jesus. Well, everybody stood outside grumbling and complaining, and the disciples didn't know what to say, and Jesus says, well... I didn't come for you that are healthy. I came for the sick. At least they know they're sick. At least they know they need it. A shepherd is called to be king of Israel. A poor, common, ha-amharetz, person of the earth, young virgin, is called to be the mother of Christ. Two Pharisees, two Pharisees are the ones who have the responsibility to take Jesus' bloody, beaten body off the cross and bury it in one of their tombs. A son of thunder becomes the apostle of love. The arch enemy of the gospel, who is killing Christians, and the number one persecutor, becomes its greatest missionary. A tax collector becomes a disciple and authors a gospel, the gospel of Matthew. And he probably used his skills. You know, he was pretty good at recording things and paying attention to detail. And he put that to work. 
and he was faithful in what he recorded, and it was right in its detail. And he left the gospel of Matthew that is particularly oriented toward the Israelites and his fellow Jews. And millions of lives over the last 2,000 years have been changed. And we sang a song today earlier, Amazing Grace. A slave trader, a man who was trading humans for money in the deep, darkest, sinful way in the middle of an ocean, in a storm, <laughs> realized how sinful he was and went back to England and became a believer and a preacher and sat down and penned those words, amazing grace. No one, friends, is beyond his grace and love. We are Christ ones. We are Christians. And we should be willing. Listen, I'm not saying that you need to go out and, and join an opium den or visit a house of prostitution or hang out with drunkards. No, that's not what I'm saying. But the principle, they're in your world. They're in your neighborhood. They're on your job. They may be at your school. The people who are the least likely to come to Christ least likely to come to Christ. But they may open the door. And we better be available. We better not be the ones. I better not be the pastor. I better not be the one to say, I'm not sitting by that person. I'm not going to befriend that person. I'm not talking to that person. Look at that person. What a, what a loser. And I'm as guilty as you, as anybody else of those attitudes. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And, and Jesus said, and, I, and he says to me today, hey, Pastor Jim, do you understand this? Do you understand what it means? I want mercy first. And then you bring your religion. I want your compassion first. And if you're here today and you're thinking that You've beyond God's grace, you are not. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open it up. I will come in and dine with you, and you with me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we just come to you today as a thankful people. Uh, we all know we are undeserving of your grace and mercy and love, but you, in your compassion, in sending Jesus Christ to earth, and bore our sins rose from the dead, and in your compassion, you invite us, you eagerly invite us, and have invited us to be part of your family, to be part of the church, the body of Christ today. I thank you for inviting me. I didn't deserve it. And Lord, I also pray, uh, I ask for your forgiveness for uh, the times that I have been uh, harsh on people because they didn't seem like they are potential fellow members of this body. I ask your forgiveness for times we've given up on people. We stopped praying because they were beyond reach. And Lord, I pray you would give us a fresh heart. Now, we like to be together. We like to share as Christians, and that's a good thing. But we also don't want to create just a Christian experience where we no longer have contact 
with those who are lost. And we pray that this week, Lord, you would open each of our hearts to know Christ as Savior to that person, those people that may live next door, they may work with us, they may ride the bus, they may be family, and they might be really, really hard to love. That you would fill us with the love of God and open our heart to be a vessel of the message that Jesus Christ came to call the sinners to new life. In his name, we sinners that are saved proclaim, hallelujah and amen.